I'm Father Mitch Packer, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Tonight, we hope to inspire faith by discussing what many believe to be the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. We know it as the Shroud of Turin. And we'll discuss some of the scientific facts related to the claims of its authenticity. And we'll try to answer your questions. But first, we want to talk briefly with EWTN's Jack Williams about the authenticity of EWTN radio. Jack, what uh, is real out there? Well, I don't, I, I don't know. I wasn't really prepared for that question, I'll be I honest know, with you. I know, I know. Well, then tell that, me what you were prepared well, to I, do. Well, it I, 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 seems like it's been forever since I've been here. Yes. I thought maybe I did something to make you mad. No. Or something, okay, no. very good. Well, you know, since it has been so long since I've been here, I just wanted to take an opportunity to remind everybody of all the great programming that's available on EWTN Radio, yes. uh, especially our lineup Monday through Friday uh, during the day. Uh, starts off with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It actually starts off at 5 a.m., 4 a.m. Eastern Time uh, with the uh, Sunrise Morning Show with Anna Mitchell and Matt Swaim, a nice uh, mix of news and, uh, you know, church happenings and uh, some great features that they have every week. We have the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, of course, which leads into Teresa Tamio and Catholic Connection, uh, which is primarily news and church issue uh, driven program. Sure. Uh, we go into a uh, show with uh, Dr. Greg and Lisa Popcheck called More to Life. My favorite host is then on uh, following them, and that's Women of Grace with Johnette Williams. She's fantastic. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> Is that why you married her? <laughs> that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Uh, we have um, Take Two with Jerry and Debbie, uh, which is kind of a lifestyle show. It's kind of a social media for your ears, mm -hmm. uh, we like to call it. Dr. Ray Garendi, Al Cresta. We even have a guy named Father Mitch Paqua on the radio on Wednesdays. Big trouble. And all of these shows are archived in our podcast section. So we podcast over 150 shows a week so people can listen to them at their convenience. You can find all of this information at EWTN.com slash radio. And we're very excited now that we've, we think we have uh, this COVID situation under control. Uh, we haven't been able to have our annual radio conference for the last couple of years, mm -hmm. but we're going to have it this year. And for the first time ever, we're taking it on the road. We're going to Phoenix, Arizona, wow. um, September 29th, 30th, and October 1st. And we're going to start with a uh, retreat day on Thursday the 29th. We're going to visit the Desert Nuns at Tonopah uh, in the uh, general Phoenix area. It's about the same distance from Phoenix as Hansville is from uh, Birmingham here. And then we're going to have all kinds of uh, formational talks and inspirational talks on Friday, uh, including our keynote address from Father Spitzer. Uh, your fellow Society of Jesus member is going to stir us up with a, a good keynote address. We'll have our awards dinner and banquet on Friday night. And then on Saturday, October 1st, we're all going to be going to the EWTN Family Celebration. Featuring That's Father something. Mitch Paqua. How about that? I might could be there for It's that. going to be a great event. We're looking really forward to it again. You can find all the details at EWTN.com slash radio. 
And if you're interested maybe in becoming an EWTN affiliate, maybe, if there's no EWTN radio in your area, if you don't have one of these 380 plus AM FM stations around the country that carry our programming, and you might be interested, that radio conference would be a great event for you to attend, to meet some people, yes. learn what you might need to do in your area to make that happen. If you want specific information about the radio conference, or about maybe how you could help bring EWTN radio to your area, just send an email to radio at EWTN.com. Excellent. All right. Thanks, well, Bob. then we'll see you uh, back on the radio, and we'll be back with you all and tonight's guest in just a couple minutes, so please stay with us. Welcome back. We have a guest tonight who was a high school science teacher. And it was around that time that he first read about the Shroud of Turin. It's more than 40 years ago, back in a magazine article. He became convinced of the cloth's authenticity. Take a look at this, if you would. question is the Shroud of Turin, you know, the authentic bear cloth of Christ. And we begin to put the pieces together, you know, the scourge marks on the back. There's a lance wound in the side. There's a cap of thorns that evidently left wounds on the head and they seem to fit only one person, history. So, so this is um, one of the things that you noticed, and the guest that we have tonight has worked with some of the world's top scientific experts, people with doctorates in a variety of fields of science to investigate the shroud, and he travels the country giving presentations to all ages about the linen cloth, which Pope Francis called an icon of love. Here to tell us more about the relic that is believed to be the burial cloth with which our Lord was wrapped after his crucifixion. And he comes here from the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud. Please welcome Mr. Jim Bertrand. Jim, welcome. Well, God love you, good, Father Pacwa. Good to have you here Thank with you. us. And this is something that uh, you were telling me earlier today that you've gone to see quite a few thousands and thousands of people in live presentations all over. Sure. And I think uh, people, you know, when you do something live like that, they have a chance to take it in if you explain things well. They have time to answer questions. 
and, and all of those talks are always preceded with it with a nine-day novena. And I think that the prayer makes a difference between, yes. you know, yes. touching their hearts or just, you know, seeing something like a DVD and moving on to the next big thing. Sure, sure, sure. No, that's, that's extremely important. Now, you know, because you've been looking at this through the eyes of a Catholic, but also a Catholic with a good background in science. You taught it at a number of different levels of school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are some of the elements of the shroud that are most important to you, especially in your presentations? Well, personally, I think the majesty of the face, uh, first thing, you know, I, I see so many emotions in that face. There, there's love, there is a sacrifice, there's wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just a, a whole cadre of, of emotions there in that face, the majesty of it. It's the face of God, I believe, and so that touched me. But in terms of many of the other things we see on the shroud is there's such a consistency, it seems like, between what science finds on the shroud and what the gospels, how they relate to the shroud as well. There's a consistency there. Give some examples about the way that the shroud is consistent with the gospel. Sure. Uh, one of those would have to do if we looked at the scourge marks on the shoulders. And if you look at the, 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 the picture of the scourge marks on the shoulders and the lower part of the back, the scourge marks are very distinct. Mm -hmm. they're, they're very easy to see. You see the pairs of where the metal balls hit. But then if you look up around the shoulder area, you see it's much more blurry and disfigured, all right? And if a person was scourged and then had to have a heavy beam across their shoulders, whether it was a single patibulum mm -hmm. or the entire cross. What do you mean by patibulum? Yeah, patibulum would be the horizontal beam of wood. The, the stipes is the vertical one. Okay. And uh, just a horizontal beam alone would be called a patibulum. People were crucified in both ways. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but a patibulum would be more likely. And when we contrast those scourge marks, we, we find that the scourge marks up around the shoulders are much more blurred, and that's what you'd expect if after you were scourged, you had to bear this weight across your shoulders and it shifted and you fell, it would mutilate and disfigure those. And so the, the point is that the contrast between those scourge marks on the back and lower compared to the upper is consistent with the gospels of a scourging followed by having to carry a heavy beam across the neck, back of back the mm -hmm. neck. Mm -hmm. See, that's, that's an important element. What else do you see mm -hmm. consistent with the gospels? Sure, there are several other ones. I, I think if we look at, uh, Isaiah chapter 50 where he said, you know, I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled my beard, my face I did not shield from buffets. And when we look at the photographic negative of the shroud face, we see in the chin area, right down by the chin, there's like a black circle there and that's because the beard has been pulled out. All right, the photographic negative tells us that where the body was in uh, there seems to be a correlation between the cloth to body distance. So those parts of the body, like the nose, the beard, that were pressed up against the shroud, they show up very lightly on the photographic negative and, and dark, of course, on the original shroud. Mm -hmm. So the beard has been pulled out. And if you look at the cheeks, mm -hmm. uh, the right cheek uh, shows significant swelling. It's lighter. And, and the forensic pathologist for Los Angeles County has studied those, and he confirms that that right cheek shows significant swelling relative to the left. And because that cheek pushes out the right cheek, it's tighter up against the shroud. Mm -hmm. And so it's lighter because it was more in close contact than compared to the left cheek. Mm -hmm. 
And so between the, the, the scourge marks on the back, the pulled out beard. And well, what would be yeah. the significance of that swelling? Yes. Well, if you were struck in the face and you had a bruise there. Uh, yes. And of yes. course, we know in the Gospels that Jesus was struck in the face. And yeah, I think when that... When he's in the court of the high priest, one of the guards hit him in the face. One of the, the guards face. hit him, yes. Yeah. And so the, the point here is that I think the shroud is a physical manifestation of how that prophecy in Isaiah 50, chapter 6 was fulfilled. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. This, uh, this is something that is uh, very important because Back around January of 1985, there had been a study that called the cloth a forgery. It was a, an academic uh, thing, they, but they couldn't quite explain how the image got there. They tried to explain this by saying there was a metal replica of the body of Christ that had been heated and then the cloth was put over it and that left the impression. But would heat, you know, just, you know, regular heat, would that put the image on the cloth? Yeah, there's a couple problems with that. One of them would be superficiality in that the scorch marks on the shroud go all the way through. If you mm-hmm. scorch it, it's gonna go all the way through. And so right. with backlighting, you're gonna be able to see that. With the real shroud, the image is so faint and superficial that it disappears when light comes from behind. Another problem with that is if you just wrap it around a hot statue, you're going to have a wraparound distortion, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, your face is three-dimensional. And when you unfold that cloth from the face, it's, that face is gonna be a foot wide and would be very distorted. So the yeah. hot statue hypothesis just didn't add up for many reasons, but one of them being superficiality right. and the wraparound distortion. Yeah, it, and it doesn't look to anybody I've ever known um, who studied the uh, shroud that it was put there as the result of a burning into it. It's more like a photographic negative than it is something that was burned into the cloth. Right. Is, does that, uh, how does that fit your well, analysis? When the, when the shroud was studied in 1978, the STIRP team, you know, that almost three dozen scientists studying it for 120 consecutive hours, yes. they were trying to answer that very question. How was the image formed? And they came away without finding an answer to that question because it's still a mystery. But after, after three years of having all their work published in scientific peer-reviewed journals, they did state these three facts, that there's no paints or pigments or dyes on the image-bearing threads. So the, hey, that, that's very key. There's no paint of any kind. You right. can detect when yes. paint yes. is put on there. And they were examining this with some really excellent microscopes. It's not that they just sort of looked at it. No, they looked at the fibers very carefully. Right. So there's no paint for sure. Right. What else? So there's nothing of the image. And secondly, that it's not the work of an artist because of that reason and also the fact that there's 3D information on it, uh, the fact that uh, we we can't make something so superficial because it's only two-tenths of one micron and there's a thousand microns in one millimeter. Mm-hmm. So getting that degree of faintness is just something an artist couldn't do. And then thirdly, that it's not the work of an artist, uh, that, or that uh, besides that it's not the work of an artist, 
but that there's not a natural process. So you just can't put a body. We'd have these all over the place if it were a natural process, right? Right. Right. So, that, that it, this is not a phenomenon that is seen in any other burial cloth. Yeah. Is that right? It is unique to the shroud. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, this theory yeah. of it being a body that was uh, heated up, a metal body that was heated up, that just doesn't right. fit. Yeah, it, those, those usually come and go pretty quickly. They, they're kind of sensationalistic many times and yes. make the headlines and then... Then after the problems are pointed out with them, why you don't hear about them again, right? That's, <laughs> that's happened many times over the last 40 years. Yes, yeah. yes, it, it, I, I've noticed that. It, it, there are these attempts to rebut mm -hmm. what these scientists had stated. And again, the scientists who studied this was a, a how many scientists were involved in well, it? I think there were some 33 involved, but there were some other ones that were involved with studying after the after the the study finished on October 12th in 1978, and they were specialists in in their fields. Uh, many of them were atheists. There were only three Catholics on that team. They weren't out to try and prove the resurrection. They were trying to answer the question, how did the image form? And after making those three statements that it's not a natural process and it's not the work of an artist. Um, well, then you ask, okay, what, what's left? <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This, uh, and again, I, I think it's very important to <clears throat> point out that it is much more like a photographic negative. And that was how the image was discovered. A, a photograph was taken, yes, correct? Yes, in, in 1898, Seconda Pia took the first official photograph, I think in May of 1898, and when he developed that, this image jumped out at him that had so much more detail that we couldn't see on the original shroud because the original shroud, as you see on the left there with the cloth image, is very faint. Whereas when you take a picture of that with an old black and white camera, on the right-hand side, all of a sudden, this 3D information hits you. And uh, it had to do, we believe, something to do with the, the cloth to body distance and also uh, the, the factor of light, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. a really an example of good science, the fact that these stirp findings, here we are 40 years later, and they're still true. That's a mark of good science. It's withstood the test of time and scientific scrutiny. Right, because other scientists do check this report and see mm -hmm. what was going on, but mm -hmm. um, they haven't been able to come up with another explanation, and they haven't refuted this scientific report yeah. on the shroud. There was another point regarding the consistency between the shroud and the gospels. If you look at the blood on the back uh -huh. and across the blood, uh, the, the blood is still very bright red. And you wonder how can that be after all these centuries? Because, you know, if blood, you get a bloody nose in the playground, it's, it's dark within a day. And yet the blood on the shroud is still a bright red color. And, and by the way, we wish to th uh, thank uh, Barry Schwartz for his permission to let us use his photos that we've been using in, in the PowerPoint presentation. Mm -hmm. And the reason that blood is red was discovered in the 20th century when a person suffers a severe trauma and loses, you know, 20 or 30 or 40% of their blood volume, the tissues are oxygen starved. And so the, the liver reacts by producing a, a protein called bilirubin that goes into the bloodstream, tries to speed up the rate of oxygen going into the oxygen starved tissues. Once this blood, which is filled with bilirubin, leaves the body, like on a cloth or whatever, it stays red indefinitely. And so the point is that when we mm -hmm. see the red blood on the shroud, it's just not the blood from any man. 
This is blood from man who suffered a severe trauma and severe loss mm -hmm. of blood. And there's another fact that we can get from looking at those parts of the body where there's blood and the body image. There's places where they overlap. And you would expect if this were the work of an artist, that the artist would, you know, paint it on some way or put it on a hot statue, like you said, and they would get the image on first, and then they would add blood afterwards so they'd be anatomically correct. Does that make sense? Right. So you'd see the image first and the blood on top, right? Right. Well, the, the shroud doesn't show that. It shows that the blood penetrated first, Good Friday, and that the image came on afterwards. Easter Sunday, and, and this was verified with x-rays. So there's yet another, another, another congruency between what the Gospels tell us and what we see on the shroud. See, one of the elements that I keep thinking about the more I learn about the shroud is that there are so many details that would have been very difficult for a fraudulent person to think of. It, it, you know, I have been hearing confessions for 46 years, and I'm not impressed with how good sinners are at cover-ups. <laughs> and criminals, I've you know, known people in prison and such, they don't cover up their sins and, and attempts at fraud very well. It's careful looking exposes. Mm -hmm. But this again and again as just little details like you've mentioned already tonight that just mm -hmm. don't speak of fraud. And there's a couple fraud. more we could add to that list. If you Go look ahead. at the pollen grains, okay, the microscope wasn't invented until 1667. And so if somebody's back in the 12th or 13th century, they would have no idea what a pollen grain looks like. And why would they place Jerusalem pollen grains? 13 of the species are unique to the Jerusalem area on that to show that. Mm -hmm. uh, why would they place travertine argonite soil on the nose and the knees and the soles of the feet to try and show that it was in Jerusalem? There's, there's so many details that they didn't know about back then because of microscopes and things like that that you wouldn't have had the foresight to... to uh, to try and try that fraud, I think. One of the other things, too, I, I remember a dissertation that was done by a woman who was an unbeliever. Um, you know, she examined the limestone dust in the cloth. And, you know, one of the things about limestone is that it has trace elements within a strontium. And the strontium levels act like a fingerprint, tells you where it came from. And they could match the strontium levels in the limestone dust. Sure. It's not chunks, it's just mm -hmm. dust scattered throughout the cloth with the tomb of Jesus. So it's, yes. it had been there. And this woman, who I think had been an atheist, became so impressed that she ended up becoming Catholic and entering a convent. And I think that that's one of the powers of the shroud is that you don't hear about lots of physical miracles. We don't have blind people touching it and suddenly seeing, 
but there have been many conversion stories uh, yes. from the Shroud. And I, I think of one in particular from a Jewish man. He wrote a book called From the Kippah to the Cross. He was a very Orthodox Jew, but he had been reading the Gospel of John and he loved this Jesus, but at the same time it conflicted with what he was hearing in his Orthodox Jewish community. And so he was trying to find out from God, you know, Jesus, are you God or not? And he was like 40 years old at this time, been wrestling with this for years. And he was looking at a picture of the shroud, a photographic negative of the face. And this was a personal experience, personal revelation he had. And he got angry at God and he said, I'm not going to move from this spot until you tell me, Jesus, are you God or not? And he said, the eyes opened. And at that instant, he had an infusion to understand how God could have a human nature and a divine nature in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, he, he didn't understand the Trinity the way God understands the Trinity. None of us do. But as Catholics, we accept that Jesus has a human nature and a divine nature. And that was very difficult for him as a Jew to accept. And once he had that infusion of, aha, I get it, he you know, went to take RCIA classes, became a Catholic, and his local bishop gave him permission to uh, speak around the diocese. And he wrote the book. So that's, that's one example of the types of, I think, spiritual miracles that the Shroud can give. That's, uh, you know, and physical healings are very important, but it is conversions in faith and to faith that are eternal. That's, the, you know, that's the, uh, you know, truly a deeper, not something scientists can see yeah. that the Shroud is that kind of miracle itself. but. Yeah. The conversions of hearts are just amazing. Yes, you know, Jesus should be our focus, uh, that the shroud is not an end in itself. Right. It points to something. Yes. You know, the resurrection, if Christ rose from the dead and led the way for us, then that should, it doesn't replace our faith because the resurrection stands on its own. All right, without the shroud, the resurrection stands on its own. But if it can strengthen our faith in the resurrection, then I think that gives people hope that while they may be living through some Good Fridays now, and there may be some more in the near future for all we know, but at the end, there's this Easter Sunday. And that, that message of hope, I think, is there. I, I experienced that when I gave this talk to some women in a prison, the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women. And from the beginning of the talk to the end, I saw this complete change in them. Uh, their faces were beaming by the end of the talk because they, you know, they were thinking, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a difficult spot now. I'm in prison. I can't see my children. Perhaps they cried themselves to sleep at night. And, but they lived with that hope that at the end there's this Easter Sunday uh, mm -hmm. that we need to be you know, faithful to God's plan and, and live a life of grace and die in the state of grace. The man who is depicted in this shroud clearly suffered uh, tremendously, scourging, crowning with thorns. That, that's the evidence is there. Mm -hmm and having his hands and feet pierced, mm -hmm. his side pierced, mm -hmm. all of that, right? Right. Those are all signs of the crucifixion. How do you see the resurrection coming through yeah. in the shroud? The victory over death. Mm -hmm. The victory over death. If that shroud is a picture of, you know, the deceased Jesus, it's also a picture of the instant of, of the resurrection, that the death is conquered. Death doesn't have the last say. And so I, I see it as a sign of victory, much like we wear the crucifix many times mm -hmm. as a sign of victory. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I know that there are some of the scientists who had studied the shroud um, mentioned that it would have been the energy, the, for, the power that 
went from death to the resurrected and glorified body of Christ that put the image in the cloth. That is one of the theories, is it not? Yes, well, you know, how the image is formed, you know, God only knows. We, we can do is take, take science as far as we can, but we maybe need to, to step beyond that to accept that perhaps there's a, a miraculous mechanism involved as well. And, and so this idea of the body going from, from matter to energy, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. the, the light event, call it the resurrection event, if you'd like, perhaps, you know, that was the cause. I mean, the resurrection is the cause and the, the, the shroud image, you believe, I believe, is, is the effect. Yeah. And the mechanism yeah. is a mystery. Yeah, that certainly would be the case. Because even when you take a photographic negative, it's, you know, it's not on just any kind of material. You know, usually you don't put it on cloth, I don't think. Right. Well, when they took that picture, it was, a, was a, with a VP8 image analyzer. They took a, a photographic negative of the face and put it under the VP8. Now, the VP8 was developed by NASA at the end of the 60s. They were going to map the surface of the moon. And the VP8 is sensitive to light intensities. And so it can measure the valleys and hills, all right, by looking at light intensities. But pictures don't contain light intensity information. But the shroud does. And that gave us a clue that the cloth to body distance, the radiation perhaps from the body to the cloth is more pronounced in those areas that are closest to, to the cloth. So this cannot be, this machine would not work on just a regular photograph of say the surface of the moon or the mm. surface of earth. Sure, pictures have shapes and colors but they don't contain light intensity information. And another thing about the photographic negative you talked about is that photographic negatives something ha sometimes have to do something with color. You know, if somebody's got black hair, the negative will show them with white hair. The picture of the shroud, the photographic negative, has absolutely nothing to do with color. All right, it has to do with light intensity. That's why his nose is lighter in color. It was tied up against the cloth. His, his, his beard was tied up against the cloth. And so the, the dark and light shades that we see in this picture have everything to do with the cloth to body distance and nothing to do with color. And that's a unique trait about the shroud that if you use a photographic negative on something else, it, it tries to give you the opposite of the color. The shroud tells us cloth to body distance. That's itself a very interesting uh, component of the shroud that really does make it um, you know, a, a great thing. The church does not have any doctrinal statement on what the shroud is, does it? No, Nothing in, in the Apostles' Creed, we profess our belief in the resurrection, and we don't have to profess a belief in the shroud right. uh, because the resurrection stands on its own. There have been many popes that have spoken about it, and, and John Paul II was asked about it. He spoke about it as being an icon, but also the fact that he believed it was a relic. So some people were thinking, well, is, is it or isn't it? And on a plane trip, he was asked by a journalist, you know, what do you think? Is it point blank? Is it, is it just a picture of Christ or do you believe it's the real burial cloth? And he answered unequivocally that John, St. John Paul II believed that the shroud is the, the, the burial cloth of Christ. Mm -hmm. And many other popes have said so, but we don't have to make that as a dogma of the faith mm -hmm. because the resurrection stands on its own without that. Right, and, and it's not that we have proof positive. You, you still have to make the act of faith. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we can say, here's what the cloth is. That isn't the absolute scientific closure on, 
uh, the, saying the resurrection of Christ happened. Right. Because um, we just don't know how the image got there. You must have faith. But at the same time, this points us and gives us, as St. Uh, Peter wrote in his first epistle, reasons to have hope. Mm -hmm. And that's very important. We're going to take a little break. We'll be back. We want to get your questions and some of your comments. So please stay with us. Right, we are with Jim Bertrand, who is, you know, giving us some more information and insight into the Shroud of Turin, and he is part of an organization known as the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud. The American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud, and you can find out more about their work by going to their website. It is shroudconfraternity.org, shroudconfraternity.org. So they, and there'll be more information about the shroud there, okay. correct? Sure, right. Yes. All right, you ready for some questions? Okay. Let's Fire start off with Kathy. Kathy, where are you calling from? Kathy, you there? Oh, yes. Hello. Oh, good. Hi, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Colorado. What part? I'm up in northwest near Steamboat, oh. near Steamboat Springs. The, the only reason I was asking is uh, in Colorado Springs, there is a great uh, museum of the Shroud. Oh. Uh, it's just, uh, you might want to go over to Springs and check it out. But what's your question? Yeah, my question, um, I was thinking about the, the tilma with Our Lady of Guadalupe, the image mm -hmm. there, and they said that um, it's a miracle in and of itself that that tilma has not disintegrated just because right. of the material. So I was wondering if the shroud should have disintegrated in the same way, and is it a miracle that it has not? Okay. So is the shroud somehow related to the tilma? No, 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 it, it's more about... Um, the tilma, which is made mm -hmm. out of a plant mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. for temporary use, and the, the, mm -hmm. the cloth made out of that plant disintegrates very easily, mm -hmm. but the tilma from Guadalupe has lasted yes. these past 500 years. Mm -hmm. Now, the cloth uh, in Turin, the, the shroud cloth, is how has it lasted Right. So long, you know, 2,000 yeah. years. Sure. Well, it is very unique to begin with from the weave. It's not a checkerboard weave. It's a very unique weave called the three-in-one herringbone, where you go over three threads under one, over three under one, and you shift one thread so that it produces kind of a stair-step pattern. I've only seen one other piece of three-in-one herringbone, and it was moth-eaten and dirty and in, in horrible shape. It was discovered in a, in a jar, uh, I believe, from the cave of Masada. Mm -hmm. And so... 
you know, something that age, which was Masada went down in 73 AD, mm -hmm. that three-in-one herringbone was in horrible shape, and that the shroud is in pretty good shape for being as old as it is, we believe. And so, is that part of a miracle? I, I can't say. I know that it was well cared for. It has been venerated and, and people have cared for it over the centuries, but it has survived perhaps floods. It has survived at least two or three fires. And so it is, it is kind of standing on its own, so to speak, when you mm -hmm. would think linen at that age would be falling apart. Yes. So the fact that it's still in such, such good shape is, is remarkable. We don't see any other three-in-one herringbone that I'm aware of at that age, it looks that good. Yeah, no, it, it's, um, linen is not uh, metallic or anything. It's, it's, it's not the, the thickest material mm -hmm. they have. And even if you have other kinds of cloth, you, you just don't see cloth lasting yeah. very often, except in places like Egypt, where it is arid. Mm -hmm. It is so dry that linen does last well there, but not in a much more humid area like Italy. Sure, and the shroud is very thin itself. When they show that picture of Dr. Jackson measuring in 1978, the shroud is one third of a millimeter. Uh, that is the same diameter as the smallest guitar string. The number six string, the E string. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the thickness of the shroud, one third of a millimeter. So it's not a heavy thing. It's very thin. Yeah. All right, good, yeah. So we can't say 100% that it's mm. a miracle, but it is distinctive. <laughs> and you don't see other cloth, especially in humid climates like Italy lasting thousands of years. You have another caller. Thomas? Yes. Where are you uh, calling from? Kingsport, Tennessee. Uh, Tom, that Thomas, good to have you. What good is your question, Thomas? Yes, Father, I have a comment for Mr. Bertrand. Uh, I'm under the impression that the blood type from the, from the shroud is AB. Could he comment on how that is consistent with Eucharistic miracles such as Lanciano? Okay. So, yeah, the blood so, type so, match between the shroud and Eucharistic miracles. Right? Yes. Right, and, and it's been tested, the shroud's been tested many times to be type AB blood. I, and there have been several Eucharistic miracles. I could name a few here, the, the uh, miracle of uh, Lanciano. Lanciano, yeah, he, Thomas the, mentioned Lanciano. The one Lanciano. in Venezuela, the one in Mexico, mm -hmm. and, and all of those uh, uh, typed out as, as uh, AB blood as well, mm -hmm. as well as the Sudarium of Oviedo, which we think was a head cloth that's now in Oviedo, Spain, that may have been in the tomb. Uh, the cloth rolled up by itself. Yeah, this is, here's one of the things, um, that's important about that too. Uh, these, some of these Eucharistic miracles occurred centuries before people knew how to do blood types. So Lanciano, I think is eighth century. Yes, yes. And uh, Orvieto is 12th or 13th century. Yeah, we discovered blood types in 1900 by Carl Landsteiner. Yes, <laughs> so you're talking in one case 1100 years, 1200 years before blood types were known, but the blood type in the miracle of the Eucharist is the same as on the, the shroud. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's significant. And one other thing too about the blood type, it's AB. 
That's the most universal blood type there is. Well, it's receiver. It's a universal receiver. receiver. Yeah, universal receiver. Yes. Which is significant about the blood of Christ. You know, that we receive his blood in order to have mm -hmm. eternal life, as he taught us in John 6. That's a good point. We have another caller. Frank, where are you calling from? Warrington, Virginia, Father. Wonderful. Thank you for calling in. And what is your question, sir? First of all, thank you for all you and your guests do for us. It is immense benefit. Oh, praise God for that. Thank you very much. You're, you're welcome. I have a prayer card, Father, and it says in the annals of Clairvaux, St. Bernard asked Jesus if there were any wounds that were not recorded, and Jesus said there was a grievous wound where he carried his cross, and it tore open the skin on his shoulder and laid bare the bones. I was wondering if there's any indication of this on the shroud. Okay, so St. Bernard of Clairvaux had, you know, in, in a mystical experience that he had, spoke with our Lord and said, were there any wounds we didn't know about? And the Lord told him about a wound on his shoulder that had been torn by carrying of the cross. Do you know of anything about that on the shroud? Well, just that there have been a couple other saints. I think St. Bridget of Sweden had some other private revelations that, that spoke of this wound on my shoulder was especially painful. Uh, you know, and that's that's not surprising when you think of no. you know, if you were scourged and then just think of rubbing salt into the wound by having that, that heavy yeah. beam go across it, I'm sure it was painful, though, so, so that's not surprising. Yeah, but there's nothing in the cloth to indicate an open wound on the shoulder? Yeah, if you're looking for more blood that way, you really don't see a significant amount on the shoulder compared to what we see in the side. You know, the lance wound in the side, exuded a, a great amount of blood, and you see more blood on the shroud there, but this wound evidently wasn't the size of a lance if it was there. Okay, so you didn't see anything sh indicating that particular wound? We see mutilated scourge marks, but you wouldn't see, you know, the type of wound you see from the lance on the side. Okay, okay. Yeah, so, so Frank, we, uh, we don't quite see the evidence for that, but that one of those things that we just don't know. Have another call. Uh, Julie, where are you yes. calling from? From Scranton, Father. Scranton, the area. Pennsylvania. <laughs> yes, I know Scranton, Pennsylvania. What is your question? My question is, um, is there a possibility that the image is more than just an image? That, like, at the moment of the resurrection, the power or nuclear nuclear event, if you will, actually may have caused a type of movement? Uh, what do you mean by a type of movement? Uh, almost like a video, like a capturing of the movement of the, the resurrection. All right, so she's asking, you know, whether um, at the moment of resurrection, it may have been on the cloth something like capturing a movement, yeah, like in a video. Yes, I've heard of some scientists, I think they were in Palermo that, that first talked about this, that it's kind of a holographic movement where you see like a, a time lapse of two or three things going on. Uh -huh. they, they claim to have found that. I would say uh, 
that has been proposed. I don't know that that's been accepted in, in the whole scientific community. So it's certainly a possibility. It's, it's an open question, mm -hmm. but I, I don't believe it's been confirmed throughout the entire scientific community. But it's kind of like what you, with your have a cell phone, you take a live picture, you know, it moves just for a fraction of a second, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. It's been written about that they see that, but I myself haven't seen that. So I would regard that as an open question. Okay, and it might be something to look up uh, what the folks in Palermo have studied on the shroud to maybe you can find out more about that. Okay, that'd be good. We have another caller. Uh, wait a minute, it's two people. Uh, Mary and John? Yes. Hi, where are you from? Brooklyn. And are you uh, married? I'm married, yes. I'm John's wife. Oh, that's what I meant. You're married, and you're married to each other. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Got that clear. Good. So, w <laughs> which one of you has a question? Both of us. My husband uh -oh. wanted. My husband wants to know about uh, if the nails went through his wrist because his arms, his hand was too weak to hold hold him with the nail. And I wanted to know. They say not a uh, not a bone on his body was broken. But uh, how could that be when they put, you know, they nailed him with these big nails to the cross? Okay, all right. So, first question, are the marks of the nail in the wrist or in the palm of the hand? Yeah, good question. There's two possibilities. Back in the 1950s, Pierre Barbet suggested it was right here, okay, in the, in, in the Vestat spot. And, however, uh, in the 20th century, uh, uh, the forensic pathologist uh, Zagabi found that this spot was more likely, and it, it was sufficient. He quantified how much weight that could hold, okay? Mm -hmm. And he found that uh, if the feet are nailed, there's 67 pounds of pressure on each of those arms, okay? But if the, if the feet were not nailed, there'd be 207 pounds of pressure because the arms are pulling away from each other. Right. It's, it's somewhat of an open question. We tend to lean toward Barbet because if you have the nail going in here and coming out at the wrist, then the heads of the nails are gonna be angled outward. And if you're a Roman soldier, it's gonna hold the victim to the cross better. He can't get away. Sometimes victims would be on the cross for two or three days. Right. If it came in on the little finger side and went out at the thumb side, the heads of the nails would be angled downward toward the ground. Mm -hmm. It's more likely the picture's gonna fall off the window. We can't say for certain. It's always a, a conjecture because we, the, the, the wound that we see on the shroud is the exit wound. And that exit wound shows where it came out. That was where the nail you know, was against the cross, but the, we don't know exactly where it went in. And I so, wondered- so, that, that, so that's one of the things that I, I think just to state that, that you see an exit wound and the entrance point is not visible on the shroud. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. And so you, you can't tell for sure if the entrance was here or here, but you tend to think that it was more in the, the palm. That's going to hold somebody down better, and it yeah. is sufficient. When, when, when uh, Zugaby quantified that, he had these bolts with pressure sensors, and so they could measure just how much weight they could handle there, whereas Barbet, when he did this, he was a World War I field surgeon. Mm -hmm. He took an 80-pound weight and yes. hung it from a, an, an amputated arm and swung it back and forth for 10 minutes, which probably isn't quite as uh, 
standardized as what, what uh, Zuggabee was doing. <laughs> See, I, I think that's an important part because I've heard many people bring that up and the experiment was somewhat flawed, the one, that the earlier experiment, uh, because that weight was on just a hand, an amputated hand, yeah. and you didn't have the support of the rest of the body. And that, that would make a big difference. Well, and also the fact that if it was an amputated arm, it may have been gangrenous. Yeah. And so the integrity of that tissue might not have been. And you know, when people ask that question, I can't say for certain, but I always tell them, does it really matter? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then the other question that Mary was asking mm -hmm. is, how could it be that none of the bones were broken? Do you have any evidence of broken bones being manifested on the shrine, Good question. the shroud. Right, well, it appears that one, maybe one of the shoulders was dislocated, perhaps, all right, but that's not broken. No. And if you go through the desktop spot or between the second and third meta, meta, metacarpal, the head of the nail will push between those bones and push them out of the way without breaking them. So those right. nails, and the same thing for the feet, you know, the nails that right. went through the feet could be between two of those metatarsals. Exactly. So, and then finally, exactly. We, we find that when the uh, uh, the Roman soldiers went back, they broke the legs of the of the two uh, criminals with him because they weren't dead yet. Mm -hmm. And because our Lord had suffered such a loss of blood from the agony in the garden and the scourging, he was dead. And they didn't break his bones. They didn't break his leg. They they thrust the lance. You know, up through his lung into his heart and, and blood and water gush forth. So yes. those things give evidence that we don't see any evidence of broken bones. Right, right. That's, and that's as much as we could say, Mary. There's no evidence of any breaking of bones. And I'm always cautious. I, uh, I mean, I hear a lot of times in the news stories, well, this can't be true. I don't see how it can be true. Well, that just because I don't see how it can be so... I have to stand back and take a look at the evidence rather than what I assume. Sure. That's Mitch, I, I did want to say one thing before that I didn't get a chance to say. You gave such a glowing uh, introduction for me. I had to make a disclaimer about that in terms of experts. I, I consider, you know, Dr. John Jackson and Rebecca Jackson, they're the true experts in terms yeah. of knowing more about this. And there, there's many other people that have been doing this for 20 or 30 or 40 years. I look up to uh, mm -hmm. Joseph Marino, uh, Russ Brialt, uh, Professor Emanuela Marinelli, mm -hmm. uh, Bruno Barbaris of Italy, uh, Barry Schwartz, and uh, Pamela Moon of the UK. There are many other people that have been doing this longer that I've learned from, and I, I appreciate well, their it's, efforts. It's good to have the scientific background to recognize the quality <laughs> of their work. Let's take one more call in our last couple minutes here. Lou, where are you calling from? Hi, Father. I'm calling from Traverse City, Michigan. Oh, cool. And what can we do for you? Well, you know, thinking about all the different ways over the years that scientists have tried to, um, you know, verify the authenticity of the shroud, what, is, what are the latest findings about um, all they did to try to do the carbon dating? Okay. We have about a minute or so. What can you tell us about the carbon dating? Well, that, that's a difficult to squeeze into one minute, but yeah. basically when they published their article in Nature magazine in 1989, they did not include the raw data. That is, what did the instrumentation say? You can say it's hot, but what did the thermometer say? Did the thermometer say 78 or 98? They didn't have the raw data, the instrumentation. In 2017, 
uh, Oxford was sued by the Freedom of Information Law through Tristan Casabianca, and they had to produce the raw data. And the raw data showed a significant deviation that it appears to get 91 to 97 years younger every inch as you move toward the middle of the shroud. And at that rate, it would date thousands of years into the future. So long story short, after that paper was published in 2019, the significant deviation of the raw data shows that, that, that their projections of the expected date uh, are just too far off the mark to be considered valid. So no. they're invalidated. Okay, so, so, so far the carbon-14 dating does not give us uh, the, the kind of data that we would expect, uh, mm. consistent data. We know more now than we did then. There you go. <laughs> So after, you know, that's what we have. Um, I'm afraid we're, we're flat out of time. Yes. I just want to mention again, the American Confraternity of the Holy Shroud can be reached online by going to shroudconfraternity.org so that folks can contact you and find out more there. Yeah. I want to thank you for being with us tonight. And, um, uh, oh, what you got there? Well, oh, a little um, surprise well, for you. Okay, we have to be real quick. Ten seconds. A good friend of mine, Mike Sizz, has always admired the work you do, and he'd made a, a special leather covering for your oh, book. And, oh, that's wonderful. And inside... I wish I could show it up up close. It's got a, uh, an image of Pope St. John Paul. a little card from his daughter inside, cool. so uh, thank you for him. Well, thank you. And I have a relic of St. Rafka, whose feast is today, a Lebanese saint. May Almighty God bless you, and by her intercession, give you His grace, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all for being with us and for your support of this network. God bless you and keep you.